What has happened here? Master's reading in bed again. Fortunately, woke up and no real harm was done. Hello and welcome to Eerie This. Today I'll be looking at a poem of Robert Louis Stevenson's called The Land of Counterpain. In addition to this episode, two more Stevenson episodes will be going live for our Patreon subscribers in the next day or so. We've got one on his Burke and Hare-inspired short story, The Body Snatcher, and another on his strange, erotic Spanish vampire story, A Liar. So if you're not already subscribed and can't get enough of um, Robert Louis Stevenson, do consider signing up over at patreon.com slash eeriedthis. But for today, we are talking about the land of counterpane. A counterpane, if you didn't know, is another word for a bedspread. And if you're thinking it sounds like it's supposed to be a pun, then you're onto something. The poem recollects a period of childhood illness spent in bed, with nothing to be comforted by except play. I felt like it was an appropriate choice for an episode during lockdown, and I hope the story of the poem's composition can bring some optimism, or at least confidence, in the durability of the human imagination. First, Adam and myself will talk a little bit about where Stevenson was in his life when he came to write The Land of Counterpain, and after that we'll look at the poem itself in detail. For now, all you need to know is that it was published in a famous collection of Stevenson's called A Child's Garden of Verses. I don't know if you've read it, it's called uh, uh, The Land of Counterpain. No, I've not in, read it. Um, which I, I know, know the book. You've... It's still an yeah. incredibly popular book. Yeah, so I, I, I read it recently. Um, I can't really tell if I read it when I was a kid or it's just the kind of book you always imagine you have. It is a very classic thing for a Scottish granny to buy like a newborn child. Now, while The Land of Counterpain is a children's poem and a seemingly typical example of Stevenson's optimism, the story behind the writing of it is complicated and strange. If you've listened to our episode from last year on Stevenson's picturesque notes, you'll know that he was a sickly child. In a preface to her late husband's poems, Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson, Fanny Osborne, says that his mother was more or less an invalid, with persistent and alarming symptoms of consumption. Her only child, Robert Louis, inherited from her a predisposition to affections of the lungs. He was unfortunate, besides, in having to endure in infancy the climate of Edinburgh, which with its cold mists and penetrating east winds was far from a desirable home for a delicate child. Fanny thought her husband's life would have been quite different had he grown up in a milder environment. And he wasn't helped much by the well-meaning efforts to keep his illness at bay. When lying sick abed, Stevenson's nursery would be hermetically sealed, keeping out any fresh air. To help him sleep, he would be given coffee, and to relieve him from pneumonia and colds, he was given wine continuously for several months, enough, in the words of his friend and first biographer, George Balfour, to ruin his constitution for life. With his mother sick too, Stevenson, or Smouty as he was called, required a nurse. Fanny relates that the first two nurses didn't take, but the third to arrive in the Stevenson household was Alison Cunningham. It was she who felt pots of coffee where it had a pacifying effect on sleepless children, and where caffeine failed, she found other ways of keeping her delicate ward up all night, such as petrifying him with knowledge of the literal existence of hell, as well as chilling local stories of characters like Deacon Brodie. Despite this, Cummy, as Cunningham was known, was devoted to Robert Louis, and the feeling remained mutual for the rest of Stevenson's life. She was a constant presence during his illnesses, Stevenson recalls the hours together she would spend helping console me in my paroxysms. But she also provided him with invaluable religious and literary education. 
Her doctrines may have been severe, rather strong meat in the mental digestion of a nervous child, in the words of Fanny, but the impression left by her examinations of her faith and its history contributed to Stevenson's first ever publication. Titled The Pentland Uprising, it is an account of the Scottish Presbyterian Covenanters' Rebellion of 1666, and published on that event's 200th anniversary, when Stevenson was still only 16. And the figure of a nurse is ever-present in a child's garden of verses. When to go out, my nurse doth wrap me in my comforter and cap. The cold wind burns my face and blows its frosty pepper up my nose. In the dedication to Cunningham, Stevenson thanks her directly for The long nights you lay awake and watched for my unworthy sake For your most comfortable hands that led me through the uneven land For all the story books you read, for all the pains you comforted For all you pitied, all you bore in sad and happy days of yore My second mother, my first wife, the angel of my infant life From the sick child now well and old, take nurse the little book you hold. The language is quite startling in its passion, bearing in mind this is now a full-grown man talking to his nurse. What's even more startling is the way he signs off with either a lie or some very wishful thinking indeed, for the sick child was far from well and old. Knowing a bit more about Stevenson's um, biography, it's strange. He, he wrote it uh, very, very sick in Nice. Um, okay. He, he wrote most of the most of the poems, recalling his sort of Arcadian youth in uh, Collington. Stevenson's garden of verses took root in 1881, and he pruned them on and off up until 1884. He was in his early 30s and recently married to Fanny Osborne. During this period, they were moving around a lot in a bid to find a climate suitable to Stevenson's health. For a while, they settled in Davos, where contrary to his belief, he was told he was not consumptive, but had chronic pneumonia, bronchitis, and an enlarged spleen. Despite his illness, it was something of a happy period for Stevenson. He wrote around this time, I have so many things to make life sweet for me. It seems a pity I cannot have that other one thing, health. After a summer in the Highlands, a second trip to Davos and a disastrous stint in Marseille, the couple came to Nice. Despite being told in Davos that his lungs were in splendid condition, Stevenson's symptoms persisted, and during this period his weight dropped to less than eight stone. The situation became so bleak that Stevenson even considered asking for his old nurse Cummy, with whom he had visited Nice as a child. From Nice, the Stevensons moved along the coast and took up residence in a bizarre cliff-top house, which a few years previously had been a show home someone took a fancy to, and shipped there from Paris. They loved the house, and in particular its garden, like a fairy story, as Stevenson said. Somehow he managed to complete his own garden, even in the most wretched conditions. According to Fanny... Most men would have succumbed to the force of circumstances, but he, undismayed, determined to circumvent the fate he would not accept. Across his bed a board was laid on which large sheets of paper were pinned. On these, or on a slate fastened to the board, he laboriously wrote out in the darkness, with his left hand, many more of the songs of his childhood. He wrote with his left hand because his right was bound close to his body to prevent hemorrhaging. He was forbidden to speak and communicated by writing on his slate. Counterpain is um, he, he is basically about him being laid up in bed as a child, mm-hmm. um, sick, as usual with Stevenson. <laughs> he was he was very sick for a very long time. I mean, pretty much all his life, and he never got a, a firm diagnosis. 
No, um, I'm assuming it was just general waifness. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever that, it was that made made sickly boys sickly. That would frustrate you coming from a doctor, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. You're you're a waif. It's got <laughs> chronic waifness. <laughs> Hysterical um, waifness. Stevenson wrote, I have three powerful impressions of my childhood. My sufferings when I was sick, my delights in convalescence at my grandfather's manse of Collington near Edinburgh, and the unnatural activity of my mind after I was in bed at night. Cummy had her part to play in his mind's unnatural activity, and not only from her terrifying stories of hell, but the other stories she told Smouty. For although his nurse would have been unlikely to endorse his future career as a playwright and novelist, she was yet a natural storyteller herself and a gifted reciter of verse. Throughout his career, and shown particularly in his writing on writing, Stevenson was obsessed with the gulf between natural subconscious ability and education, or to put it another way, between talent and craft. His famous visualisation of brownies or little people visiting him in dreams, supplying him with the essential ingredients of his stories and leaving him to ploddingly fill in the blanks during the daylight hours, is covered in his essay, A Chapter on Dreams. That short work could well merit a whole episode in itself, but I will touch on it a little bit more in, in this week's Patreon episodes on Stevenson. Suffice it to say that Stevenson considered these brownies the performers of those childhood activities of his mind at night. It seems ironic that he refers to those activities as unnatural, as plainly they represent the powerful, untaught and occasionally uncontrollable habits of the talent. That this talent was stronger and more ever-present as a child, fading later as he acquired education, is a commonplace phenomenon to almost all writers, but rarely agonised over as mournfully and eloquently and as precisely as Stevenson does. What makes his description so interesting is that they aren't entirely retrospective. During his long bouts of illness, being treated with powerful medications for various illnesses he may or may not have, Stevenson seems to have reopened a point of access with that childhood talent and become once again prone to brownie nightmares and forced to abandon the more scholarly, long form of his projects when his endurance was broken. According to another of um, Stevenson's biographers, Claire Harmon, childhood was not a distant, unreachable country for Stevenson, but one whose worst aspects he had never managed to escape. He wasn't able to escape the recurring invalid existence he'd had since childhood, but in being stripped of his health and of normal adult society and the ability to communicate, Stevenson seems to have felt again the powerful imaginative forces he had as a child. It seems unsurprising then that the Garden of Verses, and indeed the Land of Counterpain, should so strongly make a case for the benefits of play. According to Fanny Stevenson, I remember his watching with puzzled amazement the games of a little brother and sister who were visiting us at Bournemouth. Their poverty of resource and the spiritless way they went about their sport were most distressing to him. When he found that they were not exceptional but represented a pretty fair average, he exclaimed, I see the approaching decline of England. There is something radically wrong in a generation that does not know how to play. He frequently documented his own childhood instances of play when he thought them particularly inventive or interesting. When my cousin and I took our porridge of a morning, we had a device to enliven the course of the meal. He ate his with sugar and explained it to be a country continually buried under snow. I took mine with milk and explained it to be a country suffering gradual inundation. You can imagine us exchanging bulletins, how here was an island still unsubmerged, here a valley not yet covered with snow, what inventions were made, how his population lived in cabins on perches and travelled on stilts, and how mine was always in boats. 
On playing at his grandfather's manse in Collington, Stevenson said, Out of all my reminiscence of life in that dear place, all the morbid and painful elements have disappeared. I can recall nothing but sunshiny weather. That was my golden age. What was I going to say? Yeah, he, um, so he's lying in bed as a kid, um, but it it's basically becomes a, a poem about uh, a kind of triumph of the imagination um, stretched up. Uh, imagining his toys on his bedspread, his counterpane, um, sort of coming to life and at Robert first Louis taking Stevenson's care Toy of Story. Pretty much Robert Louis Stevenson's Toy Story, yeah. But um, that's why I thought it would be a good uh, isolation um, episode. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but isolation quarantine has really dulled my motivation for reading, which is weird because there's nothing but time. But it's just, I don't know. It's a sort of mental block. I am still reading, just much slower. Are you finding what you are reading changes? Like the the stereotype is everyone's reading Wodehouse when they're ill or forced to stay inside. But are you, are no, you reading funny um, stuff? Are you reading... Honestly, I've just been working my way down the stuff I've been meaning to read for ages, you know. Yeah. It's all here now. I'm not rushing about or working too much. So, you know, there really is no excuse. I'm just making my way through it, but slowly... A Child's Garden of Verses was originally titled Penny Whistles and was finally published in 1885, going on to become one of his three all-time bestsellers. Children's poetry is a weird genre. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that because I know you're a big fan of um, Kidnapped. Yeah. Um, and Not a very poetic I... book. It's no? More like, it reads more like sort of boy's own adventure than it does poetry. Yeah. It, it seems to be this thing that kind of haunts his um, critical reputation is is either people saying, you know, oh, he's just basically for kids. Um, yeah, I think that p- people know, people who know Stevenson know him for wildly different things. Mm. You know, you can be a, you can be a completely distinct fan of a lot of aspects of Stevenson. You know, you can like his adventure stuff or you can like his poetry or even his, his nonfiction, you know. He did kind of do it all. Do you hold him as a as having a special gift for writing children's um, fiction and poetry? I think, for me at least, in my own personal experience, I would see him more as a quote-unquote serious author hmm. in the sense that he wrote, you know, works of quality fiction throughout his life. That's hmm. my take on him. But I wasn't raised on his poetry as a child. So I can imagine somebody who was bought Garden of Verses, and maybe that's their only experience of him, would look at him sort of more like a, a Roger McGough or a Michael Rosen or something, or a A.A. A. Milne, put it into that kind Funnily of enough, um, for this I've been reading an article written by Michael Rosen about Stevenson. Oh, interesting. Um, and uh, his Garden of Verses. I know I've never read... I, I'd read a few articles by Michael Rosen. Or, or he's always come across as a really um, sound... And uh, interesting. Seems like he seems night. like a genuinely lovely man. Have you had any dealings with him? Um, he's definitely been around. Yeah. And when I was when I was a kid, I went to his events at the book festival. Mm. But I've never had any professional work with him. No. But see, so him he, for example, is a uh, you know died in the world children's author. Absolutely. Um, he you know he writes comedy verse for children. Yeah. Um, Stevenson. He does, he does some pretty filthy stuff for adults as well, though. Does he? He has um, YouTube videos. Really? Yeah. Um, he's he's um, 
there's there's um a, a little clip of him has become a, a a classic meme. Doing filthy adult stuff. Uh, he does stuff that's definitely not for kids. Discussing a garden of verses, Claire Harmon says children loved it because the poems are short, direct, funny, brilliantly cadenced. Perhaps children appreciate this most of all, and not mawkish. Michael Rosen writes of the work being rare amongst children's poetry in general, for being in the voice of a child talking to another child, as an equal rather than as an adult poet casting back to their former self, or a poet including a parental voice as a foil. Rosen recognises that what Stevenson was drawn to about children was their utter sincerity. He recounts another story of Stevenson watching children at play, this time two older girls skipping or dancing and a younger one strenuously and unsuccessfully trying to copy them. Rosen asks, why should this have pleased Stevenson more? And answers it by saying, because it expresses a battle between a will to perform a task and an unwilling body that prevents the achievement. We all sympathise with the struggle, but Stevenson admires the sincerity of children. As Rosen says, they have a directness, an impulsive truth about their free gestures that shows throughout all imperfection. A reminiscence of primitive festivals and the golden age. In his verses which are composed with that sincerity of voice, Stevenson indeed dodges charges of mawkishness, and the technique is most impressive when the sincere but tragicomic grandiosity of a child brushes, as if by accident, elements of life they are yet to comprehend. Take, for example, the following stanza. Must we to bed indeed? Well then, let us arise and go like men, and face with an undaunted tread the long black passage up to bed. That leads on to what I was going to talk about, which is compare him to... A. A. Milne, who wrote sort of heartbreakingly sincere stories about his son, who I think resented them in later life. But um, you know, like we are, we are very young, mm. like those kind of stories, or the um, the one about the staircase, like going up the stairs. Yeah, that is a poem about a small boy trying to get up a flight of stairs, and there's a teddy bear. Like, I can't imagine anything more earnest than that. Yeah, and you you can also imagine the resentment that might grow in a child when when becoming an adult. Oh, you're Christopher Robin. Yeah, have you managed to come up the stairs yet? <laughs> well, no, there was, there was a whole film about um, recently with Ewan McGregor about Christopher Robin. Oh, really? It's about oh, I didn't I didn't see it, but the um, the general plot is that he's a he's a serious man with a serious job, but then Pooh turns up again in the Hundred Acre Woods dying because his imagination is dying you know poo turns up poo turns up <laughs> it's like it, it, it starts off semi-serious i think and then animated winnie the poo turns up in a very weird style they're kind of creepy really yeah i don't know if it's for kids or not speaking of which and i know we haven't recorded this yet and i don't know which order they're going to come out on but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna look at um nothing but nothing but a professional stamp of quality from <laughs> Us at Erie, it's actually the the um the downside of a of a rare productive streak um i just don't know which one <laughs> i'm going to edit first but we're going to look at these jekyll and hyde movies oh yeah so i've um i've obviously looked up a bunch of them some of them i've watched some of them i haven't um, i still can't believe there are that many fucking tons i mean we're going to scratch the surface i've had to really thin it down um but um yeah, the, the one of the ones I watched last night um, is called Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne. The reason okay. um, I bring it up is it sounds a bit like that Christopher Robin and Pooh thing, because it's 
one of uh, Stevenson's characters, Dr. Henry Jekyll, um, mm. is, and he is involved with Miss Osborne, Fanny Osborne, Robert Louis Stevenson's okay. actual wife. Ah, yes. But, uh, it's, That's interesting. It's a f- freaky film. German-French production made by a pornographer starring uh, Udo Kier. <gasps> Bloody Udo Kier. He is in everything. But have you ever seen him in something where he's young? Um, I've seen him in My Own Private Idaho, where he, which I think is a... Gus Van Zandt? Christ. Gus Van Zandt, yes. About about two men in the grip of the AIDS epidemic, and he's looking for his mother. Yeah, it's Keanu Reeves but, um, and River Phoenix, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And Udo Kier plays a very strange man they meet in a motel. He, he, he sings them a song while dancing with a bedside lamp. Very but no, Udo, Udo, Udo Kier. When when you when you're seeing Udo Kier in something, you know you're not on you're not on an A road. <laughs> well, he's young and sort of devilishly good looking in this. Um, Ooh, it took me ages. Okay, I'm into it. I was waiting for him to turn up looking like he usually looks, and it took me ages to realise he's playing <laughs> Henry Jekyll. <laughs> okay, the main character. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay, we got no, way off track definitely. there. Stevenson was quite stung by criticism from William Archer of the Pall Mall Gazette, who wrote as follows. The writer knows nothing of the fierce rebellions, the agonised doubts as to the existence of justice, human or divine, which mar the music of childhood for so many. Or if he realises their existence, he relegates them to that other life, the life of pain and terror and weariness into which it is part of his philosophy to look as seldom as possible. In response to this, Stevenson wrote, You are very right about my voluntary aversion from the painful sides of life, My childhood was in reality a very mixed experience, full of fever, nightmare, insomnia, painful days and interminable nights. And I can speak with less authority of gardens than of that other land of counterpain. Lead on, lead on, Macduff. Are you going to read it or is it too long? Uh, I can read it for you if you like. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's not very long at all. Got to watch out Um, for Robert Louis Stevenson's um, copyright lawyers, but I'm sure I'm sure their letters in the post. I mean, if they've got a constitution that was anything like his, um, <laughs> it's not going to be priority number one right now. Okay, so here we are, the land of counterpain. When I was sick and lay abed, I had two pillows at my head, and all my toys beside me lay to keep me happy all the day. And sometimes for an hour or so, I watched my leaden soldiers go with different uniforms and drills among the bedclothes through the hills and sometimes sent my ships in fleets, all up and down among the sheets, or brought my trees and houses out, and planted cities all about. I was the giant, great and still, that sits upon the pillow hill, and sees before him, dale and plain, the pleasant land of counterpane. Oh, it's very nice. For the most part, the poem's rhythm is quite stiff and regular. It could be the marching beat for those leaden soldiers. In iambic tetrameter, they do indeed go all up and down among the sheets. Given the backstory I've given of the poem and its opening, When I Was Sick, you might at first imagine this to be an adult voice reminiscing. But for me, it sounds much more convincing as a child recording a sickness that happened long, long ago in child time, like maybe last week. Because the reason the meter works so well, it seems to me, is that for the first three stanzas, it complements perfectly the content, the content of what's being said. Namely, a child is saying briefly that they were sick. This is the premise of the poem, and yet it takes up all of one line. And then embarking on a free association report of all the toys and activities he got up to whilst convalescing. In that way that we do as kids when asked something dull by an adult, like, I hear you were unwell, Trevor. 
or how was school. We walled them off with a suppressing fire of bulletins, the interrelation of which is baffling to an adult because it is completely spontaneous and maybe taking up at best half of the child's restless imagination. And then I got my plastic pig and then for my pig I built a sty and then and then and then and then. Each individual line of those first three stanzas sound this way, like a child's reportage. Turns a phrase like, sent my ships in in fleets all up and down among the sheets. Also sound authentically like the voice of a child. And there is even a ring of parent parroting in, all my toys behind me lay to keep me happy all the day. To me, that sounds like something he's been told, maybe comforted with when an adult has had to leave the room for a while. Your toys are here to keep you happy all the day. Now, without changing the rhythm, the tone of the final stanza is completely different. I was the giant, great and still, is a departure from the simple list formula of the previous lines. The list comes to a stop, rightly, on the word still. The line itself demonstrates reflection and evidence of a kind of organised myth-making, quite different from the play and spontaneous record of play before. Of course, a giant can be just as much the furniture of a child's imagination as um, soldiers and ships, But those were my soldiers, my ships, my trees and houses. If he was to say, I was a giant, great and still, it doesn't disrupt the order as much, and a giant is just the next thing on the list. But by making it the giant, and what's more, I was the giant, the child, if it is still a child, is not only being much more deliberate, but is for the first time including the reader, or the listener, in the landscape of his imagination. If he was the giant, great and still, then maybe we have heard of this giant or not familiar with its legend. As you may have noticed throughout the four stanzas, the invalid slowly gains authority. In the first one, his toys are there to keep him happy all the day. They entertain him, them doing all the work, rather like Stevenson's brownies. In the second stanza, for an hour or so, he might watch the lead soldiers as they march back and forth over his bed. The level of authority has increased a little bit. Before he was being entertained, now he might watch, but only for an hour or so. Maybe because he's developing ideas of his own. In the third stanza, we discover that, yes, indeed he has been. He is sending ships about, planting cities and bringing up trees. The disinterested child of the last stanza is now busily world-building, setting the matter of the world in order, like the god of Ovid's creation story. And then in the fourth stanza, he is the giant on the hill, king of an imaginary and pleasant land. And we'd be missing a trick not to notice what his pleasant land is founded on. If we take the giant on the hill to be his head on the pillows, the dales and plains of the pleasant land are formed by the shape of his body, somewhere in which, presumably, is the source of his illness, if we take it to be literally Stevenson, his lungs. But the troublesome body has been papered over with the ships and the soldiers, the trees and the cities, but most importantly, with the activity of the mind. Play, imagination, the home of which the head reigns victorious on the hill. It would be hard to imagine a plainer triumph of mind over matter. And as I said, if you thought counterpane sounded a bit like a pun, well, you were indeed onto something. So yeah, he was embarrassed by his verses, even though he, he um, in all of his letters, uh, well, not all of his letters, but throughout his letters, he writes sort of little verses and ditties um, to people. Uh-huh. And he was very like technically gifted at writing verse. Um as you'd imagine. Yeah. Um, but funnily enough, when Children's Garden came out, uh, the reviews were pretty bad. Um, oh dear. People saying, you know, it's either kind of mawkish um, 
or even uh, one reviewer said there's no chance that this will ever sort of stick in children's heads or they'll ever want to read it. Oh, bloody love. I bloody love reviewers coming into weapons. <laughs> Uh, that I think that's that's ranks up there with um, uh, the guy who turned down Moby Dick, saying, "Does it have to be about a whale?" There are things you should never say as a reviewer because, at best, you just look like an asshole, and at worst, you look like a chronically wrong asshole. Mm. Like saying something like, "This will never stick," or "Nobody will ever remember this," even if it's not great. You don't have to say that in a review. We're off. We're off track again. What are we talking about? <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Ear Read This. I hope you're keeping well, keeping safe, and keeping your mind occupied in this weird time. We'll be back soon. We've got a few things um, planned. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading.